Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, October 2nd, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Y Trend Bowie. Hey, everyone. So Chris is not with us today. He's taking a day off, a much-needed day of rest, uh, where he'll probably be in his house complaining about something. So <laughs> We love you, Chris. You're not the soonest, but we love you. <laughs> no, he's, he's the lovable grump of the group, right? Um, okay, let's dive into it. Let's talk about what we've been doing. I wasn't here last week. Uh, I was on my way to Knott's Taste of Halloween. This is uh, Knott's Berry Farm has been doing these food festival events they are the i think the first theme park in america they definitely predate uh disneyland uh in themed attractions uh and theme parks are not open in california but they have been smart to open their park for these like food festival events and this one's celebrating like kind of fall and halloween so it has all kinds of like pumpkin spice treats and stuff like that uh, we did a video for Ordinary Adventures. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but the best thing I had was like this 
these tots with pastrami on on top and it had like this boysenberry mustard and some garlic uh onion things it was incredible and there's also a bread you'd be jealous of this they had this thing or i think you would i don't know uh they had a cinnamon roll that was deep fried and then covered in a a pumpkin like uh frosting yeah i'm definitely jealous of that that sounds amazing (laughs) yeah anyways if you want to see us eat all that kind of stuff uh i'll put the video in the show notes but um oh it was also cool because they also made it feel like all the Halloween haunts and stuff that I usually go to are closed. One of them is not scary farm. They, they decked out the whole park with Halloween decorations. And at night, the fog comes in and the lights and it, they have like actors going around as like dead people, but they're not scare actors. So they're not coming close to you. Uh, they had this whole trick or treat trail that I thought was going to be for like little kids, but it had like this animatronic, uh, alien band. And it had, um, uh, this huge, like eight foot tall rock golem animatronic that was like really cool. Anyways, it was a lot of fun. I, I, I don't know. I'm really missing Halloween this year. I know it October has just begun, but uh, you know this helps fill kind of like that uh, or scratch that itch. I should say. Um, the other thing I, I was up to is I went Halloween shopping. Thing we have been trying to really decorate our place with more usually we don't decorate at all for Halloween and this year because all the haunts and stuff are closed down we've been going Halloween decoration shopping and uh, filling our house with uh, all sorts of Halloween decorations and um, I thought it was interesting we did a video on this Uh, we were going to some of the places we didn't go to the first time and uh, it turns out I'm not sure if you guys know this but if you go Halloween shopping on September 28th you're basically too late there's there it's not even the month of october uh when we went shopping and almost every single good decoration was sold out and some of the places like we went to we stopped by a hobby lobby and they told us that they didn't even decide to do halloween this year they decided to skip halloween altogether which is a travesty <laughs> boycott hobby, hobby lobby for for that and other reasons but um so uh, so hopefully everybody out there has done their Halloween shopping already because uh, it, it seems like if you wait until the month of October, you're you're basically screwed. Like uh, Kitro is waiting to buy like one of the spooky towns. I, I think I talked about this in a previous podcast, but like these like mini Halloween villages and all of the the ones that were at the, the local Michaels that we go to were like sold out. They had like the like four of the the one house that was like the lame house so um anyways you can see a video of that on ordinary adventures i'll link that in the show notes and also this past week i stupidly realized that i let my passport lapse and um you know i got this passport 10 years ago i had intended on renewing my passport at the start of the pandemic, I actually like w- once the pandemic started, I was like, oh, I, I, this is coming up, you know, in, in March. I was like, this is coming up. I need to, you know, renew my passport. And I actually filled out all the documentation online and stuff. And then I went to go get my passport photo and every single place uh, that did passport photos was closed in the state of California. So I kind of like put it on the shelf and I was like, I'll get to this later. And completely forgot about it until this past week when I looked and my passport was completely expired by a week. 
Uh, I do not drive, so I don't have a license. This is actually my only form of ID, which I know is weird to some people. Uh, so that's kind of scary that I no longer have an ID. So I, this past week on Monday, I uh, the, the reason why I wasn't on the podcast is I went to the DMV. I showed up at 7 a.m. to the Hollywood DMV, which I will never go to ever again in my life. Uh, this is an hour before they opened. The line was wrapped around the building, down the street, uh, because, you know, they're not allowing many people to go inside. So they have a social distance line down the street. And um, I mean, people were socially distancing, but people were not really. There was people that were not wearing masks, like the person next to me was not wearing a mask and would not put on a mask, even though, even though I asked him to uh, nicely. Um, and uh I don't know. It just seemed like uh, it seemed like all the smart people did not go to the Hollywood DMV, and I was stuck. Uh, I, I don't want to judge anybody, but it, it just seemed like there was a lot of people that uh, you don't want to hang around during a pandemic uh, at this DMV. And I waited there. I see the thing is, I didn't intend to go to the DMV and wait all day. I thought I was going to be there and wait a few hours to get into the DMV to to get my California state ID, my uh, real ID. But a few hours in, I realized that, you know, I was probably not going to make it in there for, you know, another couple hours. And I was like, oh, I've already committed these three hours. So, you know, I may as well stay in this line I, or else I've wasted my entire time. Um, and by the time I got in and actually up to a desk, it was seven hours later. So I had wasted my entire day. Uh, the night before I went online and I, like any smart person, I went through the checklist twice of all the, all the documents and all the things I, that were required for me to get my ID. And, uh, I completely, I was so stupid. Uh, even though I, I, I did everything correct. I, I, I did things I didn't do things correct. I, I misread one of the things in such a minor way that I brought a wrong piece of documentation when I could have, I don't know. Anyways, I, I waited seven hours and this is my, my long way of saying I waited seven hours in line at the DMV and at the end was told that I couldn't even apply for, for this ID. So it was a really depressing, uh, really, uh, soul crushing day. Uh, I did, um, I was able to order a birth certificate online that got to me, uh, I, I did a express order that it got to me in a couple days and I was able to go back to the DMV. I went to a different DMV. I went to the Culver city DMV, which allows appointments, which if, if you guys, if anybody listening to this is going to the DMV during this pandemic, or even probably outside of this pandemic, I would highly recommend going to a DMV that allows appointments. Uh, I was able to fill out all my paperwork online. I was able to, uh, scan my documents on my phone and send it to them and to get approved. And basically I just showed up and waited, you know, five minutes in line, got inside. They, uh, looked at my documents, took a photo and I was on my way. So, uh, I feel really stupid for, for my Monday, spending the whole Monday at DMV, not getting anything. Uh, but I know everybody's having to switch over to those, um, the real IDs. I, I think it's like October, 2021. So you have a year. So uh, if anybody's going to the DMV, I would highly recommend, you know, doing that process online if you can. Uh, but yeah, I, I know that's not that interesting or exciting, but it was my depressing week of spending, you know, a whole day at the 
at the DMV. Uh, Brad, hopefully you had a more exciting week than me. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty fun, I guess. No, nothing to complain about. I got to hold an Emmy, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, a family friend of mine uh, named, named Anthony Zeller, uh, he's a Foley editor and Foley mixer. And um, he's won two Emmys. Just recently, he won one for Watchmen. Uh, but the first one he won was for working on the season finale of Stranger Things 2. And he happened to be home recently uh, visiting his parents. And they live right around the corner from my parents. And so uh, we had heard that he was in town and that he had uh, one of his Emmys with them. And so we just wanted to go talk to him and, and see it. So uh, they're they're heavy. They're very heavy. <clears throat> and uh, the wings on the Emmy are also very sharp. You could kill somebody with an Emmy for sure. Uh, and then interestingly enough, the bottom has um, some like guidelines of things that like you can and can't do uh, with the Emmy. Like there's actually rules of, th- of things that like you're not allowed uh, to do with it. Um, like you can't use it in any commercial manner unless it's permitted by the, the academies. And like um, if someone happens to to die or like they don't want their Emmy anymore, there's like a whole process of like giving it back to the academy and and all that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. And it was um, fun to talk to him, too, just about some of the behind the scenes stuff that he's uh, dealt with over the years. He's worked on a lot of different stuff, too. He worked on like all of Netflix's Marvel series and the new Twilight Zone and um utopia recently and so so tons of stuff so it was just uh cool to catch up with him what else have you been doing uh so um i wanted to bring this up because uh, i as we talked about before I, I went to galaxy's edge with you back when you know things were a lot better uh, i got to build my own lightsaber um and for a while hasbro has had their own line of collectible lightsabers that you can get they, they've been pretty impressive they have metal hilts and they have very durable blades um but more in the past I think like a year or two, they, they kind of revamped their lightsaber line. Um, it's, it's their force effects elite lightsaber line. And these lightsabers are very expensive and they're not any more expensive than the ones you get at galaxy's edge, but the ones at galaxy's edge have a little more appeal, I guess, because you get to customize your own hilt and there's the whole process of like, you know, the experience of actually building it. Um, and so I've, I've never actually brought myself to buy one of these more uh, expensive lightsabers because they're, they're right around $225. Thankfully, um, Hasbro was kind enough to, to send me one because their one of their recent releases um, is even more advanced than any of their previous ones um, because it's Darth Revan's lightsaber, uh, who's a character from the video game Knights of the Old Republic. And his character arc is one that takes him from the dark side to the light side. So this lightsaber actually has a color-changing blade that will go from red to purple. And uh, the lightsabers now come with a kyber crystal in a containment unit. Um, and then the blade is also removable, like the lightsabers from Galaxy's Edge. And uh, it's the, the color changing effect is really cool. The sound effects on it are awesome. It has laser deflecting um, sound effects. And like the light on the blade actually hits different parts when you hear the laser deflection. Uh, and the color change effect, like I said, is, is cool. I will say the one downside to this, uh, as well-crafted as the, the hilt is and the, all those cool features, the kyber crystal does not fit in the hilt along with the blade it's either or so you have to either take the blade out and put the kyber crystal in so that the hilt can be displayed on the stand or you take the crystal out so that the blade can fit inside of it so that was a little disappointing but um it's it's crazy to see how much more advanced these are coming and they just recently announced um they're doing ahsoka tano's lightsaber and that has the same kind of technology but hers changes into three different colors for all the different uh you know phases in her 
you know, experience with the force. Um, so yeah, if, if you were interested in those there, um, I, I was pretty impressed by it. You can get it on Hasbro site or in stores. Um, and like I said, it's like 225 bucks. Yeah. And I saw that, that Kyber crystal chamber will light up. Yes. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's I, I was I was impressed by it because I um like I said I, I tried out the previous ones and as good as those were they've just they've gotten infinitely better with the this new line. How does this compare to the one that you got at Galaxy's Edge, the one that you actually built yourself in Savi's workshop? <clears throat> um, I was the I, th- I think the cool factor from the one from from Zavi's workshop is that I built it myself and I have that like you know the memory of that experience of doing it and that makes it I don't know if it, it feel that much better i guess and um the these lightsabers are cool they're very durable they're very well made but there's something about the the weight of the lightsaber that you get from galaxy's edge that feels more realistic i guess because the whatever material they're using i assume it's a, a, a like an aluminum that they're using for the the hilts uh for these lightsabers they feel a little more lightweight so it is um it doesn't quite have the same I don't know, quote unquote, realistic feel as the, the ones from Galaxy's Edge do. Yeah, e- even the Savi sabers compared to the Legacy lightsabers, the Savi's ones are like heavier. Like it feels, I, I don't know, it's hard to describe because like the when you see a photo of them, it doesn't look as good as like like maybe this Hasbro saber or the Legacy lightsabers. Yeah, but like when they're in when it's in your hand, you're like, oh, I I am wielding a lightsaber. Do you know what yeah, I mean? like it, yeah, it, for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, Jacob. What have you been up to other than door dashing? Have you been doing more door dashing? This is what I want to talk about today because as I discussed last week, while my wife's out of town, I am door dashing to make some some credit card payments and to listen to podcasts and audiobooks and just give myself an excuse to not sit in the house alone. And so I've been making really good money. I'm actually really close to paying off one credit card already. I'm 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 not gonna say DoorDash is a great company because they have a <laughs> crummy in many ways but being able to make my own hours uh you know after work or in the evenings or on weekends and just go you go out for a couple hours make you know 50 to 100 bucks and come home and just go about my day it's been very useful and oftentimes very calming there have been some really crappy people like uh one woman who put an order for four 24 packs of water to her third floor apartment and she didn't tip um, so people, if you're, if you're that person, screw you, screw you to the ends of the earth. But most people are, have been kind. They have, you know, they, they tip. Uh, I've had some weird encounters, some strange encounters, uh, but most people have been generally okay. But I had a very strange moment last night. One that rocked me in a way I wasn't expecting. I want to talk about it briefly here. I was sent to go pick up a pizza from this sort of hip pizza place in this hip part of Austin, this like residential slash um commercial area it's all these you know trendy restaurants and trendy apartments and there's no parking unlike the rest of austin there's no parking in this area so i'm essentially double parked outside the restaurant calling them saying like hey is the pizza ready undouble parked so i can kind of run in and grab it and then initially not answering the phone and me getting through and them saying oh it's me 15 more minutes we're backed up so i'm trying to text the person delivering to saying hey the pizza's gonna be late i'm sorry and he, he texts me back saying what's wrong what's, why is it late and me having to say I don't know. I'm looking into it. <sighs> you waiting 15 minutes and calling again. I'm saying, nope, not ready. We need five more minutes. Me saying, I'm still double parked. So I'm, I'm like making loops around the building and there's pedestrians everywhere. And every time I try to park to make a phone call, I'm just getting people's away. So I'm increasingly frustrated. So I call the pizza place again. And the same woman, every time the manager says, oh, I'll be ready in a few minutes. You go to the back of the building in the back alley. I will, I will bring it to you directly. 
So I pull around to the back alley. I'm parked next to a dumpster. I get out of my car, put my blinkers on. And I'm really angry and annoyed. And the woman comes out and she's about my age and, you know, maybe mid thirties. And she has, she has a mask on. She hands me a pizza and she, and seeing a human face after being kind of being, I'm having like these angry phone calls. I'm angry. It's annoyed phone calls. I have the, I pull a Jacob, which is, I have, I have to apologize. So I, I say, Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to suck a jerk on the phone. I'm just trying to make this delivery. I was double parked. I know you guys are backed up and things are crazy. And I, I really am sorry if I came off like an, an asshole on the phone. And she takes a step back through a six feet between us. She pulls her mask down. It's like, so she could see, so I could see her face. And she says, don't you dare ever apologize. You're keeping us in business. You're keeping people happy. You're making sure people can be fed during the pandemic. You know, you, you never need to apologize for anything like that. This is your job and you're doing it. She, she doesn't know that. This is just a part-time thing that I'm doing. And she says, if you ever need a bathroom or a piece of pizza or a drink, you come by here and I'll take care of you. And she, wow. And she goes in the restaurant. I'm sitting there in my car. I have tears streaming in my face. Not because she was nice to me, but because I realized this was the first, mon- like, not monumental, but the first genuine human interaction I've had with a person who's not my wife and not on a screen in seven months. I did not realize how much I needed and wanted to meet a person who I did not know and have an exchange with someone I did not know that mattered. And I hope she had a great night and I had a good night the rest of my night. And that's my DoorDash story. Wow. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Nice. Yeah. It, it, cool. It's she. How do I follow, follow that? Follow, yeah. <laughs> follow, how do you follow that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in my poignant story, no. Um, (laughs) I have much less, you know, heartwarming story. I've just, um, if you guys have been following me on social media lately, you will probably know that I am, have been looking for a new roommate or potentially moving out because my roommate, uh, currently is moving out. She's moving in with her boyfriend and, um, I have to, I had to find a roommate essentially during a pandemic, which was, you know, she gave me plenty of uh, forewarning, but I was already pretty nervous about that, but Thankfully, I found one, and it was. Wait, wait, uh, wait, wait! Before that, like, what is the process of finding a roommate during the pandemic? Well, um, I got some some um, advice to use like various apps. Like, there's everything is now on on like these kind of crowd sharing apps, like a, or ride sharing apps similar to to DoorDash or something. Where there's a, an app called Roomy, where you can post your listing and you have a profile and you can ch- check out other people's profiles. So I tried out a couple of those and I got a few um, hits and I actually like interviewed a, a couple of people. Um, but I was just kind of nervous about moving in with a, a stranger during the pandemic. But luckily. I am going to be moving in with my younger cousin because uh, back when I was staying in Virginia for <laughs> however many months, um, I hung out with her for a couple for a couple times, and uh, she had been looking to make a change. And I was sort of jokingly say, "Hey, so you know where's a great place to make a change? New York, concrete jungle <laughs> where dreams are made of." And, and um, it was more joke. It was kind of a joke at first, but I, I would uh, basically just nag her every time I saw her. And guys, bullying works. <laughs> <laughs> she agreed, which I honestly was surprised about because um, I was considering even just finding a studio by myself and living on my own, which I have kind of thought about and considered before and think, thought it would be a nice sort of change of pace. But I have a roommate and I won't have to spend a bunch of money. And um, it's going to be my younger cousin. And it's very exciting. So although just the other day, um, 
I like just yesterday I tore my foot open on like this loose floorboard nail uh so mm-hmm. just like the pad of my foot there's like a little hole in it now I, I tore off like three layers of skin and um and I was like maybe I should move after all but uh so I'm recovering from that right now but uh other than that my apartment's great and I get to stay in it and you know it was a a nail that's kind of like been loose before but usually doesn't jut out so much and it was kind of unusual that I was in that area anyways but don't worry I have my tetanus shots guys and uh I'm healing <laughs> yeah that's gonna be my next question it's yes. gonna be like have you had your tetanus shot yes uh actually I want to go back to Jacob for a second I'm really <laughs> curious Jacob how, how does DoorDash work in that like Okay, so you got a call to this restaurant to pick up this thing, and it's not ready for 20 minutes, and you're circling the building. Do you get paid any extra for your time and waiting for that that item? No, that's why it really sucks. But the DoorDash allows you to drop an order. If, if I arrived there and it was a wait, I would have the opportunity to click a little button, say, nope, dropping this one, and go on to another one. I'm, that's totally allowed. But at the same time, it was my. It was, I was nearing the end of my evening. It was close to where I lived, like you know, maybe like a ten minute drive, and the the, the pay the, the pay I was getting from for it was it was like it was, it was solid enough that it was, it was worth the wait. But like for example, it was like you know a four or five dollar order. I'm like, Phew. but you know it was like twelve dollar order. So I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll wait twenty minutes. Yeah, and but wait, twelve dollar out like twelve. That's how much they spent on the order, or oh, no, that's not how much I got paid for it. Okay, so they yeah. had already pre-put in the tip. Yeah, the way, the way DoorDash works, I don't know the, the full details. Maybe someone can message and let me know if they know more. But the person pays for the for the food, also a additional, you know, money to DoorDash themselves, and then a, a tip. Hopefully, they do a tip. Most people tip, and a portion of the money that goes to DoorDash goes to the driver, and then the tip goes directly to the driver as well. So sometimes I'll my phone will click up and I'll say. McDonald's order uh, one one mile total for four dollars. Like oh, one mile for four dollars, that's not much, but I, I, that's totally fine. Sometimes it'll be like you know fifteen dollar fifteen dollar order for uh, for like you know ten miles. I'm like oh fifteen dollars for ten miles, I can do that. And sometimes you'll see like seventeen miles for four dollars. I'm like <laughs> screw you. So, <laughs> like, but if you cancel, if you decide not to take that fifteen miles for four dollars, and everybody keeps on not like not taking that, then. Who actually takes it, and do they get more money, or how does that work? As far as I know, it just gets bounced around until somebody takes it, and uh, until until the restaurant closes and the food is not picked up. So that's my way of saying, if you actually put, in a, <laughs> if you live a far distance from the restaurant, if you put in a bigger tip, your order will be picked up. If you tip like thirty percent, someone will say, "Yep, want this," and take it immediately. Whereas a crappy tip will get passed around until 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 much later, or until the restaurant closes. Interesting. See, I use Postmates, and I think you don't put in the tip, or I don't usually put in the tip until after the you know I, the food has arrived so may, maybe i should switch to doordash because maybe that would be more helpful for like to to get people excited because i <laughs> you know i'm a good tipper uh you know maybe they'll be more excited to take my my order yeah my wife and I actually pay for the uh monthly doordash service i can't remember what it's called but it, it, may, it allows the vast majority of doordash deliveries to be for free so we pay this monthly amount to doordash so we just pay for the uh, food and the tip when, when we pay for our food. So and, when, during the pandemic, it's been a lifesaver. We saved a lot of money with it. Yeah, I have the same thing, but for Postmates, I've been doing that a lot. Like I did that with Instacart. I'm not sure if anybody here has Instacart, but like now most of my groceries or at least the big groceries, I just do on Instacart and get it delivered <laughs> because I'd rather not, uh, you know, 
go, go to the grocery store. But uh, okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, you are the only person that's been reading anything this week. Yeah, I'm reading Space Odyssey by Michael Benson, which just came out on paperback. I think it came out maybe a year or so ago. And this is a book about the making of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I know a lot of this movie's been chronicled to death, but this book feels pretty definitive. I mean, it has it has quote blurbs from Tom Hanks and Martin Scorsese, you know, to give you an idea of the people who, <laughs> who enjoyed this book. But it's it's a really excellent chronicle of Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, you know, meeting up and creating this novel and this movie together. And it's incredibly entertaining and enlightening and informative and oftentimes reads like a novel. And Kubrick himself is such a great character because people always remember, always hear stories about how demanding he was and how exacting he was. We never hear stories about how it comes from this place of like almost insecurity and nerdiness and geekiness. Like he is essentially, he's depicted as such a sponge. Like he sits down with an expert and wants to learn more and more and more. He doesn't want space odyssey during pre-production. It takes like, over a year of pre-production because he just wants to keep interviewing scientists and interviewing designers and engineers and <laughs> wants to keep changing things. He wants to keep learning and, and wants to make it as, as good as possible. And some people are like quitting the production and shouting at him saying, I can't work like, like this, but it's such a amusing uh, and human read on him as opposed to, you know, the guy who did 80 takes for a take in the shining is instead the, the guy who was so curious and interested in everything that he frustrated people by wanting to learn more, which is, a far more like less monstrous take on Kubrick as a filmmaker. And it's also just full of great trivia and stories, stories about how like uh, special effects artist, Doug Lugus Trumbell, who would later become, you know, a, a legendary visual effects pioneer, uh, like suggested a story point to Kubrick who then yelled at him saying, don't you dare tell me how to write the script. Then later wrote it into the script anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> there are, it's just full of really wonderful stories and I'm enjoying a lot. I'm not, I'm not done yet. It, um, maybe about halfway through. But uh, I'm finding it incredibly enlightening and a really, really strong read. Okay. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, this These past two weeks, I've been watching a couple things. Uh, I'll start first with Console Wars, which I know Ben and Brad talked about last week on The Water Cooler. I don't really have much to add. First of all, I am friends with uh, Blake Harris, who wrote the book and also directed this adaptation, this documentary adaptation, which is available on CBS All Access. So you you should know that I am friends with him. He has written many things for SlashFilm.com. So uh, if you're looking for a completely unbiased take on this, uh, you know, probably look elsewhere. But I will say that... Um, you know, I'll agree with most of what Ben and Brad said. Like, you know, this is the story we've heard many times before of Sega versus Nintendo and the whole console wars. But it, the interesting thing about this book and also the, or th this documentary and also the book is it kind of doesn't tell the story that you've heard before. It tells you the internal story behind the scenes, like the executives and gives you, it makes them characters. And uh, Blake is just really great at like, he is, I don't know how he does it, but like, you know, he's interviewed a, a lot of people throughout his career. He's done these like, uh, how did this get made? Uh, th these pieces for Slashfilm.com. And he just has a way of getting people to to open up and say things and, and get all these like really funny, interesting stories. And the book is filled with these. The 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 movie, I think, is uh, not as good as the book, but it's still definitely worth watching it's a lot of talking heads it's uh these 16-bit animation reenactments uh it's funny it's quirky uh if you have cbs all access i'd recommend it uh i'm not sure if it's worth you know 
subscribing to CBS All Access, but uh, for it, but uh, maybe it'll be available elsewhere at some point. But uh, aside from that, I would say if you have not read the book Console Wars, I would go, you know, go on Amazon and buy it because uh, it's worth checking out for sure. Um, moving on, I was uh, we were looking for something to watch, and I don't know how it came up. We were like looking at uh, well-reviewed shows uh, this year. And I was looking for something I hadn't heard of. I, I'm always like looking for some like thing that isn't being talked about, or at least not in my like film Twitter bubble. And I came across this show called Dare Me. This is something on USA Network. Uh, we watched the first few episodes on Bravo On Demand because I think that's owned by the same company, maybe. Um, and this is from... Megan Abbott, who uh, did The Deuce, which I never saw. Um, this is based on her own novel. It is Peter Berg is a producer. Okay, so this is um, uh, it's about a cheerleader in her senior year of high school who plots revenge against this clique that expelled her, and it's uh, th- that's the basic plot description from IMDb. Um, it's. In the first episode, at the beginning of the first episode, there is they tease this crime that has been committed, uh, and the show is you know flashbacks to the series of events that came to that and teases you know who is responsible, who should we believe, who should we trust. Um, this isn't, I don't think this is a show like you know, like a a show for like kids or something like this. This is um. I guess the best way to describe this is like Friday Night Lights meets maybe Wild Things. I don't know. Does that sound like a strange combination? It's uh, it feels almost like a book. It has like a dreamlike vibe, maybe like uh, almost like Virgin Suicides. Um, it's about this whole community, not just like this football team or cheer squad that's all depending on like this cheer, like this cheer program to like do something for them. And so there's a lot of investment here. There's this, uh, this star, uh, cheerleading cap, uh, like, um, what do you call that? When you like run the squad, not captain. I don't know. The, Isn't the, it the, the cheer captain? Yeah, is it captain? It is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but from, the, from the adult knowledge from bring me on, <laughs> bring it on. Sorry. But the adult that like is running it, like the, uh, I'm not talking about the, the kid, like the, oh, the coach. Coach, that is the word I was looking for. Ht, thank you. Uh, they bring in a star cheerleading coach in to kind of like make this happen, and there's like some drama behind the scenes with her. It's this is a, it's smart. It's sometimes soapy. It's uh, it likes to simmer and let the tension build, and it's kind of like a thriller in a way. Uh, it's also directed by I think. Uh, I think most of the episodes have female directors, uh, people that directed Watchmen, Riverdale, Breaking Bad. So it has a good pedigree. I think this show might have been canceled. So I'm not sure if I'm recommending to you something that uh, doesn't pay off by the end or if this is like, uh, I mean, it's based on a book. So I'm guessing by the end of the first season, it tells the story of that book that would have a definitive ending, but I have not gotten there yet. So I, I can't t- tell you that. Uh, but I would recommend if you can check, uh, check out dare me. It's a, uh, not a show I've heard many people talk about, but I, I think it's a, uh, has great performances and like uh cinematography is good. It's, it's, I don't know. There's something more to it than a typical 
I almost want to say typical USA Network show, but USA Network's gotten pretty good with their shows with like Mr. Robot and stuff. But um, yeah, it, 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 it's good. So check out Dare Me on uh, USA Network. And also, I another thing I didn't think I was going to check out, but a lot of friends were telling me to watch Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. And I honestly had no interest in the show. This looks like just like a kitty version of Jurassic World. Um, it, it, there was a couple, a couple of my friends told me to give it a chance. And also like we have the discord channel for, for ordinary adventures, uh, for the Patreons and a couple of people in there had seen it and they were like recommending it. So Kitra and I put it on one night and we were kind of like started watching it in the background. And by the, you know, you know, an hour or two in, we we're way more invested in it. Um, this is an animated series on Netflix. It takes place during the events of the first Jurassic world. I, I have not, we've not gotten to the end of this. So this might even go through, you know, Jurassic uh, world fallen kingdom as well. Uh, but it's about these kids who are kind of this uh, experiment for this camp Cretaceous, which is going to be happening on the Island. And these people have, uh, have won the ability to be in this first class so there, 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 there's, it goes from a kid who, who won the ability to, uh, you know, a rich kid that kind of bought his way in to, uh, this girl who is a vlogger, who is an influencer. There, there's all like those kind of, uh, it has this ensemble of kids, uh, the rich kids kind of annoying. Uh, this is, it's actually, I, I would recommend anybody who is a fan of, uh, you know, the original Jurassic Park who uh, didn't hate Jurassic world. Uh, the first one, uh, th- this kind of captures the childlike wonder of the original. And uh, I-, I know Steven Spielberg was out there saying that like the one direction he gave was like not to make this a kid show. And uh, while this is a kid show, it is kids in very dangerous, scary situations. And it, it, it has a lot of the fun of the premise of what Jurassic Park is. And uh Especially if you have kids uh, that are of age to, you know, watch something that isn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't show this to little kids. But um, this is, I don't know, I'm, I'm really enjoying Camp Cretaceous a lot more than I thought I was going to. So I'd, I'd, I'd recommend, you know, check, check out the first episode of that. Uh, that said, it seems like this island was built very badly. Like kids are just able to like break into dino enclosures and stuff. It's like the security is a, is a joke, guys. So uh uh, Jurassic World is going to have to do something about that, or maybe they'll be shut down. Uh, okay. Uh, what else have I been watching? I oh, last night we watched this this documentary on Netflix, "American Murdered: The Family Next Door." Has anybody else here seen this this movie? No, no. Okay, out of anybody, I would have assumed Ben would have seen this. Um, okay, I feel like so this Chris on- probably would too. Yeah. Well, this is a documentary. It's a uh, true crime documentary. I think we started watching it because Kitra had heard it was good somewhere and thought it was uh, a true crime TV series. And it ended up being it's just a, you know, hour and 20 minute long movie. But (laughs) the interesting thing here, the thing I think that makes this worth watching is, uh, well, okay. first of all, this is a story of one day a husband comes home and his wife and two little daughters are missing and it's the story of you know what happened to them uh but it's also the story of like you know this this 
this family that looks like everything was perfect and maybe things weren't so perfect. Um, the, the interesting thing, it, it, it's a story that I think we've all seen many times before. And I think even giving you that premise, HT, Ben, all of you, you could tell me exactly how it ends. That said, I think what makes this interesting and worth watching is that is presented almost like a screen vision film. So like, um, uh, what was that movie that we liked a couple years ago, Ben? Um, screen searching. Uh, what? Are you talking about like searching, life searching? Searching. Yeah. Yeah. Screen oh, yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, or yes. whatever they're calling it. Yes. Yeah. Screen life. Yeah. 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 So it's presented like without. So it's a documentary that they did not interview anybody. They did not uh, like. There's no extra footage added. It's all using real text messages on screen, using social media postings, video shot by, you know, the victims and the the people. It's photos from their phones. It's presented kind of like in a narrative form. It's footage shot by the family and cops, uh, phone calls uh, that were recorded, uh, police body cams. Like, so you actually get like when the police first show up to investigate the scene, like you get the whole thing from a POV body cam, doorbell cameras are used, security cameras, police deposition cameras, uh, lie detector tests, you know, cameras inside courtrooms, uh, TV cameras. Uh, it, it, it flashes back and forth, uh, trying to investigate this mystery, but also diving deeper into this family and, uh, how you know our social media lives I mean, this isn't saying anything that we don't know but like sometimes things look so perfect but that that's the deception of it all and also uh at times it uh you know i, I don't think there's any big twists or turns here like i said you know who probably did this at the start of it and you know how it's going to end um but uh i don't know it's a really interesting way to present this story uh, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm not sure if I love it because at times it feels kind of like an invasion of privacy because we're going through like this person who is no longer with us. They're like personal text messages and their photos and their videos. I mean, some of which they posted online for every, like for at least their friends. So maybe I feel less bad about that, but some of it feels a little bit like, an invasion of their privacy, but I think it, it is doing it for good effect. Uh, but I, I would say, check this out. I don't think this is a great movie, but I think because of the way it is put together, it is an interesting movie that you should check it out. And it's on Netflix. It's called American murder, the family next door. Hmm. Brad, what have you been watching? Um, I haven't watched too much this week, but I did um, watch and review the first few episodes of a new documentary series coming to Showtime starting on October 4th called The Comedy Store. <clears throat> this is uh, a five-part documentary series that's about the famous uh, stand-up venue that's located on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. Uh, it's been around for decades now, uh, famously ran by Mitzi Shore, uh, who is Polly Shore's mother. She's um, basically like stand-up comedy uh, royalty. She, she was never a comedian herself, but she ran this famous venue where uh, tons of comedians, many of your favorite comedians probably, uh, got their start, ranging all the way back to the likes of uh, David Letterman and Jay Leno and Robin Williams. 
uh, even Jim Carrey and Michael Keaton in their early careers before they became actors, uh, up to more recent comedians like uh, Anthony Cheselnik and Nikki Glaser and comedians like that. And this documentary is just extremely my jam. It digs uh, deep into comedy history and is full of so many awesome anecdotes from these comedians who were around at uh, the comedy store's height, you know, of its rise in significance. Uh, because the, the reason the comedy store largely came to being such this prominent place is because uh, it's caught the attention of the bookers of comedians for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And so a lot of people who were deemed worthy enough to be on the stage in com comedy store ended up performing on The Tonight Show. And then once you're on The Tonight Show and if Johnny Carson likes you, then all these doors open and it just turns into a big thing. And so it, it talks about uh, a lot of the various comedians who became famous out of the comedy store in the early years and then works through into some of the later years. And it kind of jumps around a bit. There's not really like a straight chronological timeline. Um, there, parts of it are chronological as it works through some of the comedy store's history. But then in between you know, some of the more milestone events, it jumps around to talk about how things have changed in the, the modern age of Comedy Store and some of the flaws it still has. And uh, so it's just rich with information about comedy history, the Comedy Store itself. It's perfect for anyone who considers, considers themselves a comedy nerd. This is for you. And like the greatest thing about it is it's not, even though it's a, what you would call a formulaic documentary series, it's much more intimate than you would expect from a documentary like this because um, it's directed and executive produced by uh, Mike Binder, who you may know as the director of movies like Rain Over Me. He's also um, a supporting actor. The thing that you probably know him best for, maybe, um, movie-wise, would be being Leo Crow, the guy who keeps yelling, Anderton, wait, in uh, Minority Report. But in his early career, he was also a stand-up comedian and was doing um, stand-up alongside... Um, people like, like I said, Letterman and Leno. So he knows tons of these people who are around the comedy store during this time. And so the conversations he has with them, it's like watching two friends just have a very intimate conversation, having these candid memories and looking back on, on this time. And I think it helps the subjects open up a lot more than it would if it were just a filmmaker with, you know, an interest in this subject. So it, it gets really personal and they dig into a lot of stuff that I think you might not otherwise get if it was anybody else working on it. Um, and even though this is a documentary, you know, about comedians and a stand-up comedy venue, uh, obviously it's hilarious. Tons of great, incredible vintage clips from the comedy store, stuff that hasn't been uh, seen outside the store before, stuff from old late-night shows. But there's also, you know, tragedy that comes with it because, as we know, a lot of comedians suffer from substance abuse and depression, and it covers uh, some of the tragic stories that came out of the comedy store uh, people like Freddie Prince and Sam Kinison and um, comedians of, of that ilk. So if you're a comedy fan, um, be sure to check this out. Like I said, it starts on Showtime on October 4th. It's five-part documentary series. And yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. You can read my review on Slash Film for more. How much of it is like vintage footage? Um, not a ton of it. A lot of it is the, the interviews and then like they use archive footage um, and photos to like fill in the gaps so that it's not just mundane talking heads the entire time. But even the talking heads themselves are made to be, you know, more quote unquote engaging because the way they shot this is they shot this in tons of different locations inside the comedy store. And even some of the people who are, um, 
interviewed like repeatedly, they do it in different locations. It's not just the same location every time. And so it's, it, it's very nicely enough so that you never really get bored with it. Um, but yeah, so there's like, there's not, like I said, it's not, it's not overly vintage footage, but there's plenty of it to just, you know, give you a sense of the time and like, uh, deliver good jokes and stuff like that. Okay. What else have you been watching? Uh, and then I recently rewatched, uh, one of my favorite standup specials of all time on a standup, uh, kick because my, uh, my girlfriend had never seen this full special before, even though she had seen some bits from it and it's, uh, Eddie Izzard dressed to kill. Uh, Eddie Izzard, you might know from the FX series, The Riches, or maybe from his uh, bit parts in Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13. Uh, but he's a very famous stand-up comedian, uh, huge um, on the European touring circuit. Uh, and I discovered Eddie Izzard when I was uh, in early high school, because he had uh, a comedy special on HBO, this one called Dress to Kill. And I was fascinated by it because this was, it was this British comedian, and, I, and what caught my my attention was that he was doing a bit um, about Star Wars um, on top of the fact that he's also a transvestite. So he was wearing like full, you know, kind of glamorous makeup. And uh, I was just fascinated by him. And he was hilarious. And I just was obsessed with his comedy special when I was younger. And I hadn't watched it in a long time. My girlfriend hadn't seen the whole thing. So we sat down to watch it. And I still love the special so much. He's he's extremely intelligent. He does a lot of stuff about uh, history and religion and uh, politics and all this stuff and he's just uh, just a fantastic British comedian he has plenty of other specials um, I, I have almost all of them I think there's a couple of his recent ones that I haven't picked up yet um, but if you've never seen Eddie Izzard do stand-up before I would recommend starting with Dress to Kill because it is uh, just one of those incredible stand-up specials okay uh, Jacob what have you been watching I watched all of Harley Quinn on uh, HBO Max this is the animated series that was originally a a DC Universe show before that whole thing fell apart and picked up for season three on HBO Max. And this is an R-rated animated take on the Batman and DC characters mythos starring Harley Quinn, you know, the Joker's former girlfriend who, when the show starts, uh, follows her breakup with him, followed by her setting up to find her own path and start her own criminal gang. And the show is a blast. It is probably my, my favorite DC piece of media since The Dark Knight, <laughs> even though it couldn't be more different than The Dark Knight. But even though the show is a comedy full of dick jokes, it really understands the DC universe, understands the characters, and the comedy so often comes from a really honest human place. As silly as it is, it's incredibly violent, it's incredibly outlandish and raunchy, but at the end of the day, there's always this sense of, of, you know, the people who made this show clearly love and respect the DC universe, and Harley herself is wonderful, and uh, Poison Ivy, who's essentially the best friend character is pretty much the second lead of the show and their, their dynamic is wonderful and they form this crew of you know c-list supervillains around them and it's really fun to see what the show chooses to like depict seriously like batman the show uh, voiced by judic bader even though judic bader himself is a comedian uh batman's taken fairly seriously he, he is presented uh without too many jokes and other characters like bane are reduced to being like genuine parodies of like full on doing the Dark Knight Rises Tom uh, Tom Hardy voice. But it's always funny and it's always it always feels true to what I like about this world. And it, it, it never feels like it wants to reduce the characters and reduce the universe. It never wants to make them a joke. It wants to make them part of the joke. And I found myself really impressed by it. And it's also it does think that I think Venture Brothers 
uh, may it rest in peace always did it really well which was have a you know outlandish comedy genre series where there was no status quo if something gets broken it stays broken if something changed it stays changed it never resorts back to uh to some kind of you know starting point the characters throughout these first two seasons grow and change and evolve and their relationships are you know cracked and fixed or completely shattered and like certain characters like commissioner gordon uh, has a really interesting arc and uh harley and ivy have a really interesting arc i i think that there's there's more character maturity and storytelling grace on display in harley quinn than there isn't any of zach snyder's you know live action dc movies probably more so than the ones i like like aquaman and birds of prey it is by far the best DC thing I've seen in literally years. And if you have HBO Max and you like DC and don't mind, you know, R-rated takes these characters, uh, I found this to be one of the most satisfying things I've watched in a long time. Okay, so that's available only on HBO Max? Uh, also, I think it's still on DC Universe if you want a few people still paying for that, but that's phasing out pretty soon. <laughs> okay. HD, what have you been watching? So I've been, you know, keeping up with New York Film Festival films, and this week I watched a film called Swimming Out Till the Sea Turns Blue. It's a documentary directed by Jia Shenkei, whose uh, last film, Ash is Purest White, was last seen at New York Film Festival two years ago. And this is a documentary uh, that... Uh, that takes gives a spotlight to the Shangxi province where uh, Jia grew up. And it wasn't exactly what I expected. It kind of, um, it basically is, is formed around these testimonies by prominent art, authors and artists that Jia knew, like knows and, and knew. And um, it creates this sort of uh, tapestry of, um, or the story of the cultural the Chinese Cultural Revolution from the, like the 1960s to the 1990s. And in doing so, it's like, it's really interesting when you see that, those parts and those aspects of like that multi-generational tale. But for a lot of it, I couldn't really shake the feeling that this was just Jack kind of just letting his author and artist friends talk about their work and sort of this self-congratulatory type of of um of documentary about like the art and like while that was interesting and while like it was interesting to see how, like how they talked about their their parents and their and, and their uh um descendants and everything it was just kind of I felt I wish that there was more of a strong narrative through line it's a documentary that's told in like 18 chapters and all none of the chapters are really totally related so it's it's sort of more of like this big portrait of China and the cultural revolution but yeah, I, I felt like it was a little bit too fragmented in some ways. So that is um, swimming out till the sea turns blue, and uh, it will. I don't know where it'll be available. Again, I don't. I don't really know where a lot of these New York Film Festival films will be available, and I'm very sorry for that. But it's it's an interesting watch, and um, that is if you have a chance to watch it. Um, I do. I think I would recommend seeing it, but. Um, definitely go into mind with it kind of being that sort of artistic self-congratulatory self-congratulatory type of, of film um so the other film that i watched was uh the woman who ran which is directed by hong sang Su, and um it stars his longtime muse kim min hee uh you might recognize her from the handmaiden um and it's Hong Sang-soo, his films are often very thinly autobiographical, and I'm hit or miss on a lot of his films. I've only seen On the Beach at Night Alone and Right Now, Wrong Then, 
And I feel like his films tend to be a trip in like through his ego uh, because it's so autobiographical and it just kind of speaks to him as uh, an older artist and um, how like he and his relation to that art and with by working th- uh, through that with his muse and one time um, sort of uh, a significant other Kim Min Hee. And, but here I, I really, really enjoyed The Woman Who Ran because it's a film that very much focuses on Kim Min Hee's character. She plays a woman who uh, goes, travels through Korea, like visiting several friends and kind of just chatting with them about life and about um, what, what, about like their aspirations and that and dreams. And it's a film that barely features any men. There's like two male characters who show up and they're not, they're never really shown uh, full in full profile. It's all about just the women in these in this film, and it feels like it's so such a relief to see him sort of let go of his ego and give the spotlight fully to Kim Min Hee, who's really great in this role. And um, I liked it. It's just like a it's a very calming um, sort of contemplative walk through this woman's day or a couple of days actually it takes place over a couple of days, but uh, that's the woman who ran and um, it's, it's fantastic. I, I recommend that if you get a chance to see it at some point. Um, and the last film I watched for the New York Film Festival this week is a film called Days. It's directed by Taiwanese filmmaker Tsai Ming Lang. I'm sorry if I'm butchering all these names and I apologize because I myself have a very, comp- very hard to pronounce name. So I feel like it's hypocritical for me to mispronounce other people's names. Anyways, uh, this is a film that is very unique in that it is almost completely devoid of dialogue. It's um, intentionally not subtitled. It's a Taiwanese film and the character, the actors are Taiwanese. And occasionally there's some uh, smatterings of dialogue and that's like in the background or sometimes they, they speak, but it's nothing uh, of substance and it's a very slow moving very meditative film um that it's about isolation and alienation and it's basically this one man who um uh just kind of goes about his day and uh, at one point meets with a sex worker and then just kind of goes back to his lonely life of solitude and it's a film that is like very much just shot in wide shots uh, with no movement whatsoever, either on screen or from the camera itself. And uh, it's, it's a film that like, at first I thought I'll, I was kind of nervous about watching it because I felt like it might be one of those really boring artsy films, but it lulls you into this kind of, kind of trance that ends up being again, kind of soothing in some ways and uh, brings you into the headspace of these characters. And um, I feel like it is um, an interesting uh, sort of breakdown of voyeurism and being the voyeur and uh, those. uh, So I think that's a, it's a fascinating film. I can't say I loved it, but um, it really, it's a, it's definitely a very singular movie and experience. So that's Days, uh, directed by Sai Ming Lang. And um, that's it for my New York Film Festival update. Um, you will you've, you will see some of these <laughs> reviews at some point on SlashFilm.com. And lastly, I did an accelerated binge of Lost, seasons two and three, 
for a an appearance on a podcast that I will talk about in next week's water cooler because it's not yet out. Um, if you guys remember, I appeared, uh, I think, around a year ago on the podcast The Storm um, by Joanna uh, Robinson, Dave Gonzalez, and Neil Miller. They were formerly a Game of Thrones podcast, a storm of spoilers, and then they trans- transitioned to being uh, a Lost Rewatch podcast called The Storm. And I appeared last year to talk about um, an episode, and I will be appearing again uh, for an episode that I'll talk about later. But it's really interesting doing that accelerated re- rewatch because um, I was trying to get through the two seasons and get the get like the key important elements of it, and. Um, Lost is a show that I adore and will defend, and I kind of am on. I'm on the boat of this. No episode is is uh, worth skipping. It's a great show. You should watch all of it. But I did find in doing this accelerated watch that I could, I could skip through some of the the subplots and storylines that I found either tedious or inconsequent inconsequential. And um, while that's hard, bad to say for someone who will defend the last. Uh, the the ending of Lost, it is it's a show. It's like I haven't actually done before, like an entire full like binge rewatch of Lost. Uh, I only watched it, you know, as it was airing, and I would rewatch several of my favorite episodes every now and then. So it was interesting doing this accelerated rewatch and seeing how much this show, how much Lost, really benefited from that week to week format um, because I. I think I, w- I was on the mind of that, like Lost was a show that, you know, because it's so serialized would benefit from the binging um, model, but it's, a, it's, it's, it feels like it's somewhere in between because it's the way that the story plays out and it's peaks and valleys and everything feels like it's so suited towards that storytelling from week to week and I feel like it's it's a rare show that you see that's like so serialized but so suited just towards that week-to-week format so that's uh my rambling sort of um observations about binging lost and um the uh getting able to being able to skip some of the plot lines and characters I didn't like that much so (laughs) but yeah lost is still great I still love and appreciate like all the character writing and drama even when you see um the some of the characters lose steam so it's it's um it's it's such a fascinating um sort of artifact i guess of the the end of the week-to-week format and of the beginning of the the serialized storytelling so lost streaming now on hulu what do you guys think now like isn't the boys doing Uh, jacob maybe you could tell me isn't the boys doing like like they're releasing a few episodes in a row and then they wait a while and then they release a few episodes uh for this season they released the first three at once and the rest weekly so kind of sort of what do you what do you make of that format of release i personally liked it it allowed for me to get my initial binge on sit down on the premiere night and watch three hours (laughs) three episodes in a row and really get like the fix i wanted and then you know once I was hooked, once the binge binge had happened, I felt really hooked into it. Taking the rest of the chapters bit by bit, week by week, it felt like a really nice combination. It satisfied the binge urge while also spreading it out in a way that I've actually really liked. And I hope more people do this way. Yeah. No, I, I miss I miss the coffee like the, the, the water cooler discussion of like what lost was. I feel like that was so much of a 
what lost was for me like the speculation and talking to friends week to week and i feel like without that like i'm not i haven't done a rewatch maybe i gotta do a rewatch but i feel like without that it would lose something and also like to to catch you know i, I guess what is she is getting at to catch your breath in between some of it like you you lose something if it's like it's just like the the satisfaction of going episode to episode but uh yeah okay uh ben what have you been watching? I rewatched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, uh, you know, we've talked about enough that I don't need to go long on this by any means. But um, I just love Leonardo DiCaprio's performance so much in this movie. I, I am so impressed by what he was able to do um, as Rick Dalton. And then also, um, I, I think the first time I saw the movie, I was a little bit more... Um, I was unconvinced uh, either way, whether or not Cliff Booth killed his wife on that boat. And this time watching it, I was 100% certain that he killed her. So I don't know what that says about me or or um, the way that I rewatch things or just like if the movie struck me in a certain way and, uh, you know, this time around. But the way I saw it now, I was just like, oh, yeah, there's like no question. I can't even believe that I ever doubted it, you know, the first time. So maybe in a year I'll watch it again and be like, no, I think there's, you know, ambiguity there. But uh, as of right now, I'm like fully convinced. So it wasn't like you saw an extra detail that made you think this. It's just like how you were feeling while you watched it. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, which is kind of like movies. They're great. I love it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. But um, but yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is uh is one of my favorite Tarantino movies for sure. So um, it's always a good time for a rewatch of that one, I would say. Uh, I also rewatched uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Which I, I don't think I'd seen really since I was, you know, somewhere in the range of 12 to 14 or 15 years old. Um, man, Jack Nicholson is just like on fire in this movie. And it was so much fun to see the supporting cast, which at the time was made up of like a lot of nobodies but are now names that you would definitely recognize Christopher Lloyd and Danny DeVito being like the two big ones that, that jump out as like, Holy shit, these guys, this is like some of their, you know, earliest work. Um, so it, it's kind of fun to see them super, super young. Um, but for me, Brad Dorif, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, he's from Deadwood and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. you you definitely know his work. He's the voice of Chucky in the uh, child's play movies. He really like steals this movie as uh, the character of Billy Babbitt. And I think he was nominated for an Oscar and I think it's, it was well-deserved because he, um, I, I totally forgot that that actor and really that character was even in this story because it's been so long since I've seen it. And Nicholson sort of casts such a long shadow over the, the movie um and you know he's obviously the one who's on the poster and everything so it, it's sort of like it feels like nicholson's movie the further away from the film you get and you sort of forget about or i did anyway the the supporting characters who are like arguably just as important so um brad dorif man i just wanted to give a shout out to him because he was he was really really excellent in that movie um i want to talk to you guys for just a second about nurse ratchet uh and i wrote a whole thing about this in my quarantine stream uh entry recently I feel like Nurse Ratched uh, has gotten a bad rap because this character is uh, the American Film Institute ranked her as the number five movie villain of all time. Um, Louise Fletcher, the actress who plays her, is excellent. She does excellent work in here. But uh, man, there's something about the way that that character has been villainized that I'm not quite sure if she's fully deserving of all of the hate that she's gotten. I, I understand that the movie is like supposed to be, you know, this metaphor for like 
um, authoritarianism and like, you know, she, I, I understand what she represents um, or what she's supposed to represent. Um, and I think also a big thing is in the book from, oh, I've never read the book. I have the book. I'm looking forward to reading the book now, especially with this movie so fresh in my mind. But I think in the book, she's a much more um, diabolical character than she actually is in the movie. So if you're able to do this, try to strip away everything you can, everything you know about the character from her pop culture, you know, the, her, her synthesis into pop culture and maybe what you know of the character from the book. And if you just look at what she does in this movie, um, I, I just really don't think that she deserves to be considered one of the great, you know, all-time movie villains. So, uh, Jacob, I want to throw this to you for a second because I assume that you probably edited my um, quarantine stream piece and, and read my sort of like, you know, breakdown of, of points about this. Uh, was what I wrote... Uh, you know, vaguely convincing to you in any way? Or did you read this and sort of shake your head and laugh and go, oh, Ben, you fool. Of course, Nurse Ratched deserves to be, you know, as villainized as she is. I think that in the context of the creation of that film, what it's meant to be about, which is, you know, standing up to authority and standing up to, you know, um, uh, people trying to keep you down, uh, she works as a villain. But I also think that 40 years of better understanding about mental health has not always been necessarily kind. <laughs> One for the cuckoo's nest, and seeing things like Jack Nicholson's character breaking out all these people who need help for a day on the town to go boating, uh, it it feels very dangerous in a way that if you take it all literally, then yes, I don't, I don't think Nurse Ratchet makes a great literal villain, but as a metaphorical villain, which is the film's intent, I think she still works very very well. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I just think um, you know, watching it now uh, for the first time in so long and just like looking at her actual actions in this movie and thinking about, you know, how she was this woman in a position of power in the 1960s who is desperately trying to, uh, you know, control this group of male mental patients who, um, you know, in an era, like you said, where like knowledge about mental health was not nearly what it is now. Um, I kind of just feel like she does a couple little things here and there. And, and one thing that I wrote about uh, it comes very late in the movie and, and has disastrous consequences. But for the most part, I really kind of think she's just like just doing the best she can and just sort of doing her job. So um, it sparked a whole thing in the comment section of the post. So <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, people, I, I think a lot of people are like bringing in extra stuff when they, uh, you know, hear me talk about that. And they're like, oh, you're out of your mind because, you know, of course she's this huge villain, but I, I would challenge people to watch this movie and just like based on her actions alone, um, watch it and then tell me that she deserves to be, you know, a, a, a villain above, you know, any comic book movie villain who kills, you know, a hundred thousand people in a movie or whatever, you know, the, the typical kind of thing is. So, uh, okay. Ben, so that's one. Um, I just want to say, yes. I just want to say that I, I have to d disagree with you. I did read your piece and while I, I, I appreciate like the, the points you brought up and it like, it makes sense. Um, I do think that she, you know, she's more a representation of an oppressive and cruel system. And you do mention that in your piece that it's all about authoritarianism. But I think that the thing that makes her a villain and that people love to hate her is that she is just that cog in the system. And it's not really mu as much about like the gender politics of it as much as what she represents and the way that she, so in the way that Louise Fletcher has such a chilling and performance adds to it. So I, I, I will disagree with your take um, and um, I will, I, I don't want to pull this card, but the way that, that um, your point about her just doing her job is also something that the Nazis just did. So 
<laughs> they were just doing their job too. So I, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I buy the uh, the comparison there, but I mean, I I take your point. I, I think also there's a you know in, in terms of the um, you know she's a cog in the wheel kind of thing. I think there's this moment in the movie that sort of speaks. It pushes back against that a little bit, where she is in this room of a bunch of you know doctors and like um, uh, hospital administrators and people who are in charge essentially, and they are debating what to do with R. P. McMurphy with Nicholson's character and like what you know should we get rid of this guy what should we do and she's the one who says i think we should keep him in here and i i think you know you, you could read that as like um that's her wanting to you know imprison that character further and i i guess there i think in the literary sense there would be a more of a you know that read would make sense but i i think just um i i don't doubt that she like genuinely wants to help him in that moment. And maybe that's just Louise Fletcher just being so ambiguous with her performance that I can't read her super well in that moment. Or maybe I'm just being naive. I don't know. But I would encourage people to like engage with this concept uh, and watch One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, um, you know, or rewatch it if you haven't seen it in a long time. It's, it's streaming on Netflix right now. I just think it's an interesting thing to think about in, in 2020. Um, I have no personal interest in watching Ryan Murphy's Ratchet show, the, the prequel, like about the origins of the character. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, I, I think it's a, it's a rich text for many, many reasons. And um, I, I just happened to sort of zero in on this whole, the nurse ratchet of it all this yeah. time. And uh, I do also yeah. want to say one more thing, sorry to like stretch on this conversation, but I think that these top five ranking lists uh, that name the, the most, the best villains or the worst villains of uh, uh, cinematic history is less about like how hateful and how horrible her actions are, but, but as much about like her and the characters like impact on pop culture and how they stand up. It's less, yeah, it's not about like their heinousness of their actions, but just kind of that impact on pop culture. And I do think that there's something to be said about how much nurse Fletcher, even though she's not a villain that has as much of a body count per se as other uh, cinematic villains has been able to ingrain or um, that kind of uh, physical reaction and um, against her and and I, I think that that says something about like her character and what she represents yeah yeah for sure uh, okay, so I also watched uh, Enola Holmes, which is the new, um, I guess, Sherlock Holmes universe movie that is uh, streaming on Netflix right now. Millie Bobby Brown uh, produced this movie. She stars in it. She plays Sherlock's younger sister, and she is such a compelling screen presence. I really loved watching her, um, you know, step into this role and, and play this character. Um, you know, she she obviously broke out on Stranger Things and has appeared in uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, but I, I thought that was kind of like a nothing movie and a, a not really a significant role for her. Um, this definitely feels like this is, you know, introducing the world to Millie Bobby Brown movie star. And um, I, I really am on board with that because I think, she, I think she's excellent. Um, I love being swept away by a, a good mystery too. And this movie definitely has that. It's, it's a, pretty you know bouncy little up upbeat piece of storytelling it's not like uh it's, it's certainly not like a heavy movie it's also not a subtle movie at all it, it has this very like overtly political message about voting and changing the world and um empowerment for young women and all that kind of stuff but i, I think that's like that's good like there you know you could you could slam the movie for being uh um for for hammering that message home or you could just sort of like 
you know, tip your cat to it or tip your cap to it and, and say, okay, movie, I see what you're doing. Like, sure. You know, I don't, I don't remember there being movies when I was a kid that were um, so overtly uh, political in this way, where it was um, basically like things seemed more, uh, and and maybe this is just a a false memory of mine, but it seems things seemed more uh, in the shadows when I was a kid and, and things now, because maybe just the way that culture has evolved are, are being brought up to the surface much more now. And this movie is, is sort of like a surface level movie. There's not really much going on in it, but I think, uh, it's a, it's a fun little mystery. Um, Helena Bonham Carter's character who is depicted as this sort of quiet revolutionary, uh, disappears in the beginning of the movie. She's, um, Enola's mother, and uh, it's basically like a, a quest to track her down. Um, I guess if I had a nitpick, I would say that like the specifics of the mom's plan for how to actually enact that revolution were never super clear to me. So I thought that was a little bit of an odd choice. And then also just as like somebody who appreciates Sherlock Holmes stories, this movie does Mycroft nasty. Mycroft Holmes, who is uh, Sherlock's older brother. I should say also that uh, Henry Cavill plays Sherlock, by the way. So if you're a fan of <laughs> his work as Superman or, you know, the uh, the physical su- uh, specimen that is Henry Cavill, as uh, HT's mom appears to be from our off camera or off, uh, off microphones conversations just <laughs> right before we started recording this podcast, um, then this is a, a good movie to watch because, you know, they're just like strolling around in Victorian costumes and everybody looks great. Um, but Mycroft, who is this character who in the, the Doyle novels and in the BBC version of the show, he's even better than Sherlock when it comes to like the powers of deduction and observation and stuff like that. Uh, His only downfall is that he's too lazy basically to be out in the field and do anything about it. Um, Sam Claflin, I think is how you pronounce the actor's name. He plays him in this movie, but he's like a, he doesn't have that intelligence in this movie. It's like a complete, uh, you know, pulls the rug out from under that character. It's a, it's a total, like reinvention of who Mycroft is from the ground up. He's like this stuffy, oppressive jerk in this movie. And he has no sense of intelligence at all, which is a real, a real choice and a real shame. I I don't understand why they decided to do that. Um, Maybe because they thought that, you know, having Sherlock and Enola and Mycroft all be very observant and intelligent and like, you know, uh, good detective kind of characters would make things too weird, too one-sided or something. And they needed, Mycroft to be more of a villain I don't I don't really know but um yeah I, I also one last thing about this movie this character of Tewksbury who was the the male lead I thought he was really underwritten in the movie and was kind of disappointed with the the performance because he didn't the actor didn't really have much to chew on but I think that's really purposeful because it's like this interesting reversal about how female characters in movies like this are so often depicted as almost nothing more than just a pretty face and that's basically what this character Tewksbury stands for in this movie um so I just thought it was cool to see uh Millie Bobby Brown be you know the driving force behind the narrative and then her just sort of like get sucked up in this uh you know sort of um romance with this pretty face of a guy and there wasn't really much to him and it was just sort of like huh yeah I guess that is if you if you reverse those roles that basically is how movies have been for so long so um that's Enola Holmes it's uh it's mostly harmless it's on uh Netflix right now and then finally I watched uh, Heat Vision and Jack which is a pilot that Ben Stiller directed in 1999 and uh it was a pilot for a show that never got picked up so Fox ordered this pilot um, it has become a cult classic in comedy circles. 
and uh, Jack Black stars in it as a uh, a NASA astronaut who is exposed to two you know uh, like high levels of solar energy, and he he gets super intelligence, but only when the sun is out. And uh, Heat Vision is voiced by Owen Wilson. Uh, Heat Vision is a talking motorcycle, so it's Jack Black riding around on a talking motorcycle with Owen Wilson's voice. Uh, Ron Silver, who is the villain in uh, Time Cop, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, plays himself. He is like a, a an actor on the side who also works for NASA in this fictionalized universe. And he is trying to track down uh, ben, uh, uh, Jack Black's character. And uh, watching this now, um, it's on YouTube right now, it's, it's so obvious why this show uh, sort of like, first of all, was not picked up because it was so far ahead of its time, but also became this comedy touch touch point for a lot of people because um it's it's so funny it's so modern in its comedy and it's just sort of hilarious to think that this came out in 1999 which was like you know before jack black even had that breakout film role in high fidelity so it's kind of crazy to think about like where exactly this falls on the timeline this is like before zoolander it's it's um you know, Christine Taylor, who is Ben Stiller's wife and, and an actress in her own right, obviously. She, you know, this is years and years before she showed up in Dodgeball. Um, Dan Harmon, who's the obviously the guy behind uh, Community and Rick and Morty, um, is one of the writers of the script. So, I mean, there's so many, like, great people involved with the making of this thing. And um, it's just, it's one of those, like, great what-if moments in uh, in network comedy. So that's Heat Vision and Jack. And you can watch the uh, the only episode of the show, just the pilot that never got picked up on YouTube right now. It's funny that you recently watched this because uh, we just recently had a thing where a, a GIF showed up in our Slack channel with Ben Stiller that we couldn't remember or figure out where it was from. And as I was trying to find it, I stumbled upon the existence of this, which I had never heard of before. And once I saw it and I saw that it was on YouTube, I made a note and saved it so I could watch it sometime soon because it looked like it was going to be something I enjoyed very much. Oh, yeah. You'll love it, Brad. It's it's um it's definitely like this is one of those things that I've been hearing about for like 10 or 15 years and people talk about it and I just never had the time or made the time to like carve out 30 minutes and watch this, you know, one episode of TV. I just I, I don't know what what stopped me from doing it. But now that, you know, we're in quarantine month a billion, I was like, all right, I'm just going to finally sit down and watch this thing. And I'm glad that I did because it's, it's very, very funny. Yeah, maybe, maybe HT and Jacob should watch it because I hear there's some kind of Doctor Who connection there. There is there is a Doctor Who reference uh, in there. Yeah, one of the characters is watching an old episode of Doctor Who on TV. So, yeah. okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating? What have I been eating? Is a good question. Um, so there are some cereals that came out recently. They're not new cereals, but they're throwback cereals, I guess you could say, because. Um, I think it's General Mills. General Mills is, the, um, I think, the ones that do, like, Cocoa Puffs and stuff like that, right? Is that is that correct? I think that's correct. Anyway, um, th- they have reached back to, like, change the recipe of certain cereals so that they are as they were um, a long time back. Um, and it is General Mills. And so Trix, Cocoa Puffs, Golden Grams, and Cookie Crisp, they all brought back, I guess, like, the original flavors that they used to use. Um, and I, the one that I stumbled upon that I decided to grab, uh, was golden grams, uh, because I, I do remember a change in the, 
um, flavor of it because they used to use real honey, but they don't anymore. I don't know what they use instead, but they went back to the original um, honey recipe. So I had to get them to uh, just try it again. And they, they are better than what Golden Grams are now. It's not like an overwhelming difference, but you can you can taste the difference between real honey and whatever artificial flavor it is they use uh, to make golden grams today. So that's fun. I, I, I do want to try to get the Cocoa Puffs one because I do distinctly remember Cocoa Puffs being um, a little bit more packed with like chocolate flavor than they are uh, today, probably because, you know, they're just trying to make kids kids healthier instead of <laughs> little lumps on couches. <laughs> well, when I was a kid, I loved tricks. Like tricks was like tricks and and cocoa puffs were my two cereals. And a couple of years ago, I bought tricks. It must have been after they like changed the formula, and it, it not only did it taste not as good, but like the colors were were like dull. They weren't like so as bright. W- when you when you bought it, was uh, had they gone back to just the colored puff balls, or were they still fruit shaped? Oh, they were just colored puffballs. Yeah, so a while, so yeah, for so for a while they went back to the old retro like colored puffball shape, and so I think along with that, that's probably why the colors changed. Um, but like, but this, but the new um, one goes back to the the fruit shapes again. So is this replacing those cereals, or is this like a limited time thing? I think it's a limited time thing. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's permanent, but um, but I haven't seen anything for for sure. So don't quote me on that. Okay. What else have you been eating? Um, on the a similar cereal um, spectrum, I guess. So every fall, they bring back the monster cereals. Boo Berry, Count Chocula, uh, Frankenberry, and is there one more? Or is it just those three? Uh, I feel like we're missing one, one, but I'm not. It's not hitting my if you, head. If you, if, you find, if you find it, let me know. Yeah. But anyway, um, at Walmart, I happened to stumble upon... I didn't even see that these were uh, existed online because usually I'll hear about something online before I see it in a store. Um, but they have these little mini Count Chocula cereal treats that are basically like uh, the cereal bars that they've been doing for a long time of all the various cereals um, in a, um, a not very healthy um, bar form. You know, it's not like a granola bar. It's still very sweet and very sugary and so it's just it's the count chocolate pieces that are brought together in bar form with a, a chocolate layer on the bottom um and they're they're very small i imagine probably because they're not healthy at all that they didn't want to do a bigger bar um but they are very good and uh, i was actually surprised because recently um and i think this this might very well tie into just how cereals change recipes over the years um, but I remember getting Count Chocula like a year or two ago because I hadn't had it in forever. And I was so excited to see it back. And it wasn't nearly as good as I remembered. It just wasn't as chocolatey as I remembered. Uh, but these treats are very much uh, very chocolatey. So I don't know if it's, if they go, went back to an old recipe for Count Chocula as well or what. Uh, but they're very good. And I found them at Walmart. I don't know if they're an exclusive there, but that's where I found them. I just yeah. discovered the Golden Grams version of what you're talking about, Brad. And I've, oh, I've they're been, so good. Yeah, I've been getting those uh, recently at my f- trip to uh, Publix, the grocery stores around here. So uh, I know that people can find them at Publix, too, with like a bunch of different flavors and stuff. Yeah, those are awesome. And, and you were right. Those are the three monster cereals. There used to be more. In the 80s, there was a Fruity Yummy Mummy. Yeah, that's the one I couldn't think of. It had Monster Mellows. Monster Mellows? There you go. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> uh, what else have you been eating? Um, so, potato chips. Tons of potato chips out there. But there is one potato chip that I, I have always loved, but I've rarely ever been able to find it. And it's mostly because the two chip companies that primarily make them are not readily available in the grocery stores in my area. 
Um, when I was on vacation in Florida in February before coronavirus, which is a very old fashioned sentence, um, I found hers uh, made there. They have uh, dark russet potato chips. So the, the, the darker potatoes, the chips are crispier. They have they have almost just a, a slight, almost uh, burnt flavor profile. They're my favorite regular potato chips ever, but I can never find them. And I was so excited to find them when I was in Florida. But back here, it is impossible to find them. But recently, it, apparently, Walmart is now carrying Utz brand potato chips. And they are the other one that does a dark russet potato chip. And so I was very excited to find them. These are the best regular potato chips, hands down. Like, screw lays, screw ruffles, all of them. Dark russet potato chips, whether it's Utz or hers, are the best flavored potato chips have you guys ever had dark russet potato chips no i've never even heard of them i think that you can get them uh online through walmart as well um that you can have them actually shipped to you not just the you might be able to do also the grocery pickup delivery as as well but i did find them online on walmart.com uh the ones from Utz, and they're just they're so good they're like i said crispy and just a a slight burnt flavor profile and it makes them delicious Hmm. i'll check those out Okay, let's move on to our last segment. That's what we've been playing. Ben, what have you been playing this week? I just beat The Last of Us Part 2, which I have been playing slowly for what seems like months now. Um, it's a very uh, long game, a very detailed game. I mean, at least for me, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are gamers out there who would disagree, who you know maybe burned through it in a weekend or something. But I, I sort of played it for like you know an hour here, a couple hours there kind of thing. And it took me like a couple months at least to uh, to beat this game. But man, what a, an insane video game. I, um, I'm a really, really, really big fan of the first The Last of Us. And this one changes things up significantly the the gameplay is almost identical um which is great because i actually love the gameplay in the first game but the uh the story man this whole thing the game is just about um revenge and how it eats these characters away uh on the inside and it does so many interesting things with its storytelling and i don't even really want to get into it too much in case people don't know anything about it because i as soon as i heard that this sequel game was coming out i was like all right i'm going on lockdown i'm not watching any trailers i didn't know anything about it i just was like all right uh i'm just gonna play it you know completely clean completely fresh and um i'm really glad that i did because about halfway through the game something happens and it's uh it it is uh definitely something that um didn't happen exactly in the same way in the first game it uh recontextualizes everything you think you know and um really like forces you to come to grips with the acts that you're committing as these characters in this game. And um, Jacob, I think you would really, really like this just based on, you know, the, the previous conversations that we've had about video games and like your, your love of like complex storytelling and stuff like that. I think, I think you would really um, get a lot out of this. And I don't know if you already know what I'm talking about in terms of like the, the thing, the event or, or switch or whatever that happens halfway through. But um even if you know it going in the act of like spending so much time with these characters and, um, and playing with them and, and sort of being forced to make these horrible decisions and um, really coming to grips with that. It is such a, uh, a powerful like storytelling experience that um, it really feels like a, a true gut punch at, at the end of this game. So um, that's the last of us part two. I'm, I'm sorry for being so vague. I just don't want to spoil it for people who, uh, maybe haven't had a chance to dive into it fully yet, but, um, I, I had a really, really, 
what is the word? Um, I mean, transcendent seems like too much, but um, close to that experience playing this. So uh, it's available for PS4 right now. I think that does it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and view this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. Peter. Peter. Uh, I I can't I'm gonna, I can't hear you, Jacob. Peter, you weren't here last week for the insults, and that that hurt me. Yeah, I tried something new last week. I I tried a different insult master, Mr. William A. Shakespeare, and you weren't here for it. Uh, I, I mean, that's probably a good thing. I think clearly the only solution is to go back with the people want. I mean, clearly, if you can't be around for you know the new one. Clearly, the only solution is to go back to Louis A. Safian and stick with that and not try anything new ever again. Yeah. I feel like this moment calls for some sad piano music. <laughs> wow! Yeah, well, I'm magic. In this case, I have opened up a gigantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, and implant put downs by Mr. Louis A. Safian, the man who inspired a thousand writers, including William A. Shakespeare. I want to check the timeline on that one, but I've opened the book to page 244. Chatterboxes, chatterboxes. Peter Serretta, he's a real constant source of irritation. Ear uh, irritation. I don't. Yeah. Peter Serretta, you know he's a real I'm constant source. Stopping this music of irritation. <laughs> Ear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. you, see, you see, Peter, it's spelled E A. <laughs> Peter is a real constant source of irritation. I, I, okay, I get it. Irritation. <laughs> uh, ben Pearson, he's a great talker. One of the best you can ever hope to escape from. <laughs> ben Pearson, he's a great talker. No, get your timing right here. Ben Pearson, he's a great talker. One of the best you can ever hope to escape from. There we go. Uh, HT, she can talk 50% faster than anyone can listen. HT, you okay, Now I get it. HT, she, she can talk 50% faster than anyone can listen. <laughs> Thank you. What is going on? <laughs> well, Brad, it's not accurate to say that Brad always gets the last word. He just never gets to it. Uh. Okay. When did this become a morning radio show? <laughs> right now. When I, when I figured out I could play music during. during oh my gosh. Okay, th- that's it, right? We're done. I think you were all raised on tongue sandwiches. Uh, what? <laughs> wait, is there a punchline? You all must have been raised on tongue sandwiches. <laughs> there we go. Ha <laughs> ha.